What did you tell your kids about Santa? Um, the answer for me is uh, I didn't. Like I, I told them that Santa did not exist. Mm-hmm. Um, I so I and part of this is because I don't want to tell them any immaterial being that people can't see exists that doesn't. Mm-hmm. Because at some point they'll find out he doesn't, and they may wonder what other immaterial, all-knowing moral beings that have some say in their future also don't exist. Uh-huh. Right, and I don't want my words to be a word that dis- disillusions them. Um, however, I, we do we do kind of revel in the history of Saint Nicholas in our house. Um, saint Nicholas was a great saint and bishop. everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, where we engage with culture and equip the local church in faith and ministry. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. In this episode, we're going to be answering the remaining questions from Sunday's Ask Me Anything time. Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, is here with Nicole Kyle, our Music and Worship Arts Director, to talk through those questions. If you've got more questions for us, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can also ask your own questions live during future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. We hope to see you there. Thanks for listening. Nick and Nicole. I'm Nicole and I'm the worship leader at High Point. This is Nick. He's our lead pastor. And we are here to talk through some of the um, Ask Me Anything questions from the sermon this past Sunday. So for a little bit of context, we're in the midst of a series called The Weight and the Hope. And um, this is our Advent series. Advent is a season of waiting. And um, so we're talking about hope and waiting together. And, um, this is our second week in the series. So, um, some often I ask you, Nick, if you can do a summary of your sermon, but there's one question that I think will help give enough context for many of the questions to follow. So I'm just going to start with that question. There was a particular illustration that you used when you were preaching. And this person is just asking you to, um, go through that illustration again. Yeah. So um, I was trying to break down the fact that um, we, so last week, the week before we talked about hope and how hope is an aesthetic virtue. It, it um, avails you to beauty and beauty Mm -hmm. is encouraging. And so in the midst of the ugliness of the suffering of the waiting under the curse, the beauty of hope, particularly being able to see with hope's eyes, future glory, what God has promised, right? That that's supposed to encourage us and help us and strengthen us and be the counterweight to the weight of the curse, right? Nick, before you keep going, I just want to say, I've never thought about hope as an aesthetic appeal before, but I see that. I see what you're saying. I just have never had, I wonder if that's new for some other people. I mean, have you always thought of hope that way? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) No, but, but I was once three months old you know like well I, sure I, 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 I guess i'd be <laughs> depends yeah, on what i mean, I mean I always i think i think hope is is an inspiring attribute yeah right it's meant to inspire um i, I don't think it's meant to be a, an analytic attribute i mean you can def- you could explain it that way but i don't think that's how it functions i think yeah. I think it buoys the heart with encouragement right. through aesthetic means, like the, the means of beauty rather than, mm-hmm. and, but, but as I said in the sermon, it doesn't do any good if you don't believe it's true. 
mm-hmm. right? Like, like I, I was listening to a podcast this week, and a guy was talking about how, um, like churches and things used to hold the the culture of our society together, right? Mm-hmm. These institutions, right? And one, and he's like, you know, with you know, without these, you know, people need to understand the importance of these institutions and how they belong. And the other guy was like, no, they don't. The re- the reason why they held the society together is because we believed in what they taught. We believed in God, and we believed in like mm-hmm. gathering because we were worshiping God. And you can't have the institutional stability of the church if you don't believe in God, right? right? And in some ways, hope is the institution of beauty, but you have to believe it's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. You have to believe that the promise of future glory is true. You have to believe that the, what God is going to do is actually true. So that's why I said hope needs to be supported by the certainty of faith, Mm -hmm. that there's the knowing and really actually believing that God is going to do the thing supports hope. And if that doesn't happen, if you don't believe it, then what happens is the weight of the curse pushes in and produces a cognitive effect, which is doubt. So the weight of the curse, it's ugliness. It's like it's like it's like you go underwater and the water won't wreck you, but the more water there is as you go deeper, it increases its sort of its pressure against you, right? Mm-hmm. And as you go into more suffering, you go through more life, you see the world more as it is. You you see more of the ugly that's in the world, and it comes against your mind and your heart as doubt. Mm-hmm. Right? And what I said was, it's kind of like wearing a mask. And when you go deeper underwater, it pressurizes your mask and the water pushes against it. And the air that's inside it decreases in volume. And it turns your mask into this big suction cup on your face and the mask starts to hurt you. Mm-hmm. And that's similar to our lives in that like, if you have hope that isn't supported by the certainty of faith, right? You believe God is going to save you. You're going to be in heaven. It's going to be beautiful, right? And then more and more, you see the ugliness of the world, Right. So you get you have this increasing pressure of the weight of doubt pushing in on you, and, and doubt always sounds like an argument, even though it's a fear, right? It, it, it presents itself like a proposition, like this is false, or, or, um, or an argument like how can you believe in God if there's all the suffering in the world and so on, right? And so yet you hold this really beautiful thing in your mind, which is the hope. So you have mm-hmm. the ugliness of the doubt, and you have the beautiful thing that's the hope, and the hope thing doesn't have the strength to push back the doubt, right? Because it's crushing you. It's crushing in, right? Yeah. And so what that does is it, it tears your heart in two because on one level, you really do believe that the world is an ugly place with terrible malevolent things happening in it because you see it with your own eyes and you can feel it. And yet you want to believe in this beautiful future glory and the God of that future glory. And the two are, are pushing you in opposite directions. Yeah. And so um, what I said was is that in scuba diving, when that happens to people's masks, it starts like sucking on their eyes. It, it like They can feel it's really uncomfortable and they want to just take their mask off and throw it away. Yeah, because it's crushing them, you know, and but that's similar to like throwing away your faith and saying, well, I guess the world is just an ugly place and there's nothing to this religion stuff. You know, there's yeah. nothing to God. There's, I mean, the Jesus thing must just be a myth or something. And you just you just throw it away. And the problem is, is that now you're deeper and deeper into an environment you're not suited for. Right. And you're under that more and more pressure. And yeah, now you're not feeling the additional pain of the mask sucking at your eyes. Yeah. But, but you're in some ways, you're no better off. Now you're blinded. Yeah, yeah. And you can't function. Yeah. And you can't thrive in this environment. Now you open your eyes and everything's blurry. You can't see what's going on and so on, right? So what I said was the way you actually deal with this in scuba diving is as you go deeper and deeper underwater and your mask pressurizes, you, you're breathing in and out through the scuba apparatus, right? Through the tank and so on, right? And so you're breathing in pressurized air into your lungs through your mouth. In order to make your mask pressurize against all that, uh, that water pressure is you blow pressurized air through your nose into the mask and it just repressurizes your mask. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It's like a twentieth of a breath. It's like a, it's not very much air at all. Yeah. And so it repressurizes your mask, and you can see clearly, and your eyes feel gray, and you keep going deeper and deeper, and the pressure of the water keeps increasing. But because you blow in some air pressure against it, it just keeps equalizing, mm-hmm. and so you're fine. Right? Yeah. And and so what one of the things I said on Sunday was the certainty of faith, all that God has done to give us the certainty we require to have what I call operative faith, enough certainty to act, mm-hmm. right? That that's what's necessary. And you, and you need to, you need to support hope with the certainty of faith that God has provided. So you have to not just avail yourself of the picture of the beauty of the promises of God, but the actual promises of the certainty that God has done it and will do what he said based on his character and based on what he's spoken and shown in history. Yeah. Right. And so, and so faith has to support hope is the simplest way to do it. Mm-hmm. Faith has to support hope. Just like you have to pressurize a scuba mask against the pressure of the water so that you can thrive in the environment that you're not suited to, whether that's being underwater or whether that's a image bearer under the weight of the curse, you know, because, I mean? because mm-hmm. we weren't created to live under the curse. Human beings are not created to live under the curse. Right. We're not suited for this environment and we need hope to bear it. Mm-hmm. But hope has to be supported under the pressure of doubt with the certainty of faith. Yeah. Or hope will crumble. It will actually hurt us. And yeah. It'll, and our, and it'll, you, doubt will use our hope to make us throw away our faith. One of the things that, one of the things that I thought of as you were preaching and as you were talking about it again now is that, so the, the week before that you were talking about the specific thing we need to have our hope in. And that if we're placing that in the wrong thing, that's not going to be the counterweight we need. We need it to be in the right hope. Cause I, I've the, in the past couple of years, I've felt like this specific thing is one of the things God has been teaching me very specifically in my life. And, um, what I found myself is that I would, for so much of my life, I would recoil at the passage in Romans that says, hope will not put us to shame. Because every time I found myself hoping in something that didn't happen, I did feel like a fool. And I did feel this shame. And I would always read that. I'm like, what are you talking about? That's exactly how I feel. I feel like a fool. Yeah. Until I realized that I was putting, I wasn't putting my hope in the right hope. I was using some other counterfeit hope that wasn't actually promised to me through the promises of God or, or was just my, like my desire, but wasn't actually the right counter counterweight to the curses of the world. And so that was one of the, the ways that I saw those two things fitting together too, is that it has to be the right hope, which is why you have to have certainty in it. Because some of the things we hope for in our lives don't have certainty, haven't been promised to us, aren't what God is actually desiring for us to have hope in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the time in the worship service where I remember that point being made was during the Q and A, and you made it, and you were like, "Yeah, I mean, we yeah. gotta make sure that we're putting our hope in the things God actually promised, rather than things He didn't." And I think that's really important because God is only obligated to fulfill promises He's actually made. Yeah, and so you have to pay really close attention to what those are and how He makes yeah. them. Yeah, I think yeah. that is. I think that is really important. So um, another part of the. Um, of the illustration was that one of the things we do is we'll take our mask off. And you said another thing that a lot of scuba dives, scuba divers will do is they'll just drop their weight belt and they'll go back up to the surface. And you mm-hmm. related that to um, Christians just retreating from the world and going to their own bubble of other Christians or even non-Christians doing that, finding their own group of people who are going to really encourage them and whatever this specific thing is. Um, 
one person wrote and asked about these two different options of how you can respond to the pressure. So the person wrote, what do you think that High Point and Christians in Madison are more likely to do? Abandon some part of our faith or all of it, um, the things that makes things harder, or retreat to a Christian echo chamber? And what ideas do you have to remind each other of the truth of your sermon today during the time of COVID? Um, let me answer the first question. Cause I think I know what that one means. And then yeah. you can, you can push me on the second one if you want. Um, so generally speaking, my experience is, is that younger people um, who are more disposed towards a progressivist and more secular outlook on the world innately um, or culturally. Um, and because they're more um, compelled by the idea of fitting in than people who are older than them um, tend to pitch the faith or hide it. Mm-hmm. Right. But usually what that means is they give up on it. Yeah. Right. Um, so for younger people, what they often do, I think, is they pitch the mask and they fit in. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, think older people or for people who are for some reason highly conservative in their uh, view, view of the world, mm-hmm. um, then they tend to move towards a more um, contrarian because in Madison, that it's mm-hmm. the, it, part of it is what is where you live. What's the majority view? Yeah, and so because we live in an anti-religious majority culture in Madison, mm-hmm. um, I think that that people who are prone to fitting in are going to go that direction. So that's yeah. going to be the the. Uh, but but I but here, the thing is, I, I'm not sure throwing away the faith and retreating to an echo chamber are mutually exclusive. I think some people will throw away their faith and retreat to an echo chamber sure. of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but so I, because of things like, uh, social media things and other ways in which you can get around people just like yourself, the temptation to tribally enter a echo chamber, which group think makes the world sufficiently simple so that you can feel like you understand it and have the answers mm-hmm. is extremely high for everybody. Yeah. And so religious people have structures and theologies and stuff like that already in place in order to do it. So it's really easy for us to do. Yeah. But anybody who clings to a simplistic ideology is in danger of it and will find structures and people and dynamics in which they can do it. I think it's more, I think it's easier to do it right now um, if if you're kind of on the left in America, so to speak. Um, but it's I, it's not like it, it's all different philosophies can find their way to do it. Yeah. You know? I mean, you can see this. You can see this with American white supremacy. Right. I mean, there's you know, there's maybe a, f- a few thousand legit white supremacists in America in a country of 350 million people, but they can find each other now. Mm-hmm. Right. And they can yeah. gather and they can have like little chat rooms and stuff like that. And they can feel like they have a community in their little world of thought and anybody. So, so like any group can do that. Fishermen can yeah. do that. You know, if you like bass fishermen have their own little world where they talk about, you know, like have you seen the, the Facebook commercial basically for this very idea? No. There was, I don't remember when I saw it, but it was, it, there was, I don't know, but it, it was this commercial that was talking about how like any group can find a group on Facebook, any, the most obscure oh, yeah. niche of people can find a group for that on Facebook. I mean, they were, they were advertising this very idea that you're talking yeah. about right now. Yeah. Well, and, and listen, if it's a hobby thing, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Like who cares? Like you, like I'm on a group on Facebook that's like axes. Like people yeah. find different axes and they're like, what kind of axe is this? And how would you restore that? And uh-huh. it's fine as long as I don't interpret the whole world through that, you know, like right. as long as I can hold it in its place. 
But when people retreat from the complexity of the world, which is our, which is a very natural instinct yeah. for human beings, yeah. um, then they want to find a place that can take in the whole world without remainder and make it simple. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, every, and like, you know, secular people often think religious people do that, but they don't. And mm-hmm. that's just ridiculous. Yeah. Every, every human being wants a simple place where they can have a defined tribe where they can be accepted as a friend and they can know who the enemies are. Yeah. It's like catnip to the human spirit. Yeah. Um, Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the second part of the question. So I I think that the idea they're making is in the pressures of COVID, if that is an example of feeling pressure in our faith, um, Mm -hmm. then how can we encourage one another as it relates to what you talked about having certainty in our hope. Yeah. I mean, in some ways it's, it's the exact same dynamics that we've just been talking about. Like mm-hmm. you, you should, like you should, ex- like if you feel like your faith is wavering, well, you need to realize you got three options. If the mask of your hope is getting pressured, mm-hmm. right? You can throw off your weight belt and retreat to a, to a cloistered community. You can not go deep. You can go and back and be shallow. Two, you can throw away your faith and take away the complexity of the world. Everything is just ugly. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Right? Or three, you can um, you can avail yourself of God's actual promises and live in faith according to those rather than allowing your circumstances or what you think is happening under the curse to dictate who and what you're supposed to be. I'm going to talk a little bit more about like what we're supposed to do in the waiting this coming Sunday. Yeah. So in that sense, we may just need to wait for more of that answer. It, it, but yeah. it's essentially to be a faithful steward. Yeah. To to while while you're waiting for God to do what only He can do, mm. you do the things you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Oh, I'm very excited. Um. Yeah. I just gave away the whole sermon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. Let's go to the next question. This person writes: Faith is quote the evidence of things not seen. Yet some main ways that we know our faith is the right faith is by applying reason, logic, and observation. How can we do these things without diminishing our faith? I I don't think that you ever get to a clean distinction there, right? I think um, anything that we think we have reasons for, and God has given us many convincing proofs it says in scripture of who he is and what he's done and all those sorts of things. And, um, and that seems to be intentional on his part and scripture treats God's self-revelation as something that leaves us without excuse. (coughs) So what scripture teaches is that there is overwhelming and obligatory evidence to believe in God and in his Christ and the gospel and in his self-revelation. And that if we don't, then we're without an excuse. So in that sense, it's certain and all that. Yet at the same time, we exist as people under the fall, people who are naturally truth suppressors. Our our brokenness and our blindness under the curse makes it hard to see, right? Mm-hmm. And Jesus talks about human blindness as a fundamental part of our existence presently. And so we're always fighting against that blindness, right? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, like we're not going to see what's right in front of our faces, even though we should. And so faith is the means by which we fight, try to fight through that blindness and believe what is there and see everything that we can see Mm -hmm. and ask God to give us sight. But in the end, what I think is going to happen is God is going to say, because of your condition, you required faith. 
But had you been willing to see and not been wicked, you would have seen. It was all right there in front of you. Sure. But because of the condition of your blindness, because you were trying to suppress the truth, because you didn't really want to know the truth, everything seemed so opaque to you, so hard to see. And the more that was true, the more you had to fill the gap with faith. But Jesus didn't need much for faith. He saw what was there and he just did his father's will. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so you gave a couple of examples or yeah, a couple of examples in your sermon about ways that God has given us proofs of the certainty of his promises. And, mm-hmm. um, the next few questions are related to those. Um, <clears throat> so <throat> I'll start with the first one. This is what is your take on the historicity of Adam? And then what are the implications for this discussion? Um, so this has come up a good bit more recently. So for a long time, um, evolutionary theory didn't have a lot to say about human evolution other than that it was, they believed it happened. Mm -hmm. Um, but a few years ago there was more discussion about, um, how human, the modern human could not have evolved through a single pair, but had to evolve through a population. Um, this was written for Christians in a book called Adam and the Genome. Right. And what, what the book basically argued was there can't be a Adam and Eve, like a mother and father, a first, first parents that are a single couple. There has to be a population of about 10,000 or no less than 10,000 from whom we've evolved. And because of that, there can be no such thing as a historical Adam and Eve for a species like human beings. That has been somewhat debated up until that point. I just don't, I don't really most Christians who believed in evolution and believed even in human evolution believed that the human race as we know it today still came or proceeded from a single human couple. So that whatever evolved, evolved eventually into two humans, those two humans found each other and from thence proceeded the human race, right? And so, yeah, even if we evolved, we still ultimately came through this first pair and so on, right? There, there have always been people who believed that the first chapters of Genesis were mythological anyway, right? Mm-hmm. But they weren't a large number of the church. So this has been kind of hotly debated since that book came out. It's probably almost 10 years old now, right? Mm. In the next couple of months, I'm actually going to have a couple of scientists on yeah. with some different views on that. Um, one scholar who believes in the full story of evolution, but believes that there is a genealogical Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve who, um, who uh, were together who who had children with each other and yet who when you work out the family line of all human beings would be in the line of all human beings even mm. though they wouldn't have been the first human beings mm-hmm. and so in that sense they would be the genealogical adam and eve though not sure. the genetic adam and eve it's just it's an interesting view it's worth yeah. looking at you know that kind yeah. of thing. and then we'll have another um doc, guy on dr daniel jensen who is a young earth creationist he doesn't believe evolution is right he believes there's increasing scientific evidence against it and that Adam and Eve must be therefore immediate creations of God and utterly historical. Um, the, the, the other option is that people have believed that the first chapters of Gen- Genesis are mythological. That is, they were not intended to be read as literal history mm-hmm. and there are signals in them that they are, his- that they are mythological in nature. Now, if that's true, then reading them mythologically would not be a rejection of the trustworthiness of scripture. The question is, are Genesis 1 through 10 or 11 meant to be mythological, right? Sure. I have never been able to take them that way. There are some things in them that would make them seem like they're mythological, right? Like the six days feels a little mm-hmm. bit like that. Um, also, like 
that the first man is named man, the first woman is named life. You know, there's trees yeah. symbolizing good and evil and, and eternal life. Like that, that feels kind of like mythological literature. And yet at the mm-hmm. same time, like there's these details in there, like, you know, this river flows there and there's good metals in the soil there that people dig up. And you're kind of like, that seems very historically specific. You know, that there's a lot of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Plus there isn't a clear indication between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12 that we're, ch- we're moving now from mythology to historicity. Mm-hmm. And because there aren't clear differentiating markers for that, um, a lot of people interpreting scripture are just real skeptical about it, you know? Yeah. Um, so so I, I'm not saying that I would totally rule out, like that I would lose my faith. Like sure. if Jesus showed up and said, Nick, the first 10 chapters of Genesis are mythological. You're meant to get like these big ideas about human life from them, but there wasn't really a boat or a flood there weren't like Nephilim. Yeah. Adam and Eve weren't literally two human beings. What you're supposed to get out of that is how human beings fell from grace. Yeah. That God created things good, all that. Like, I wouldn't lose my faith. I'd be like, oh, I wouldn't be like, God, you're a liar. Sure. I'd be like, oh, I didn't, I didn't pick up on that, mm-hmm. that that was what you're trying to do there. Um, so until I don't think you can interpret Genesis 1 through 10 in a pretty straightforwardly historical way. Yeah. Um, then I won't, then I will, I will interpret them in a pretty straightforwardly historical way. Mm-hmm. And in my book, the, the jury's still out that the theory of evolution is moving. So like the, the changes and the, the theorizations of it are just moving around so much right now. Um, yeah. They've moved around more in the last 10 years than I have ever seen them because, because of epigenetical research and stuff like that, that I, I'm just not going to be like, Oh, we know the answer. I, yeah. Like it's a, it's a, it's a spinning crate right now. And I just, I, I I can't catch the thing in me there, mm-hmm. so I'm I'm actually just kind of waiting to see some stuff pan out. Sure. I I think therefore we should we should hold to a historical Adam, or at least what I you could just call a theologically functional historical Adam, mm-hmm. until we know better. Yeah, because it appears most of the places which Adam is mentioned in the Bible, it appears to take him as a historical figure. Yeah, including in the mouth of Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, I'm very loath to yeah. say, well, Jesus understood he was a mythological creature, right. a figure. And he, he was just, but, but you still speak about mythological figures as though they're historical mm-hmm. when you're utilizing the myth. So, I mean, I've read all that mythological theology, but I, I just think un, unless, I think we should default to the historicity until we can't have overwhelming evidence against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And I don't know when can't is. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I'm going to switch to um, a question about Jesus fulfilling prophecies. This person says, which was another example that you gave of God's proof of certainty. So this person says, sure, some might say that Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies that he couldn't control, but could he have lied about his lineage or any of those things like his birth town or things like that? In other words, the things that he couldn't control couldn't he lie or cover up? Um, perhaps in theory. Um, but remember, Jesus wasn't particularly old when he was murdered. And so when somebody like Luke goes and like investigates this, I mean, Mary yeah. is still alive. And, mm-hmm. and so um, it's, it's not as though Jesus is this old man and everybody in his stories has died and in his nineties. He like passes on the story. All these things can still be verified. And so, um, 
what the, what this kind of gets to is like there are a lot of theories about Jesus that are secular in nature that basically say there's a way to explain this. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence for it, right? But but if you don't believe in Jesus, then there are ways that you can postulate something could could have happened, right? And that feels perfectly rational because if you're like, look, there's nothing rational about somebody rising from the dead, right? Any explanation, therefore, is more rational than that, mm-hmm. right? So that Jesus successfully lied or that his mother, like, that is by definition more rational because the alternative is somebody rising right. from the dead and that's completely out of bounds, yeah, right? Yeah. So part of this has less to do with the historical information or the reasoning it has more to do with how you reason through what's the most likely thing that happened. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. If in your mind it's it's a plausible thing that Jesus rose from the dead, then it is. I mean, ultimately, one of the things you have to deal with is, is there good reason to believe any of that? Mm-hmm. Right. Like if, if there's good reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead, whether or not he was born in Bethlehem is sort of moot. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, but you also do have to deal with the question of the gospel writers say that he was born in Bethlehem. Is there reason to doubt them? Yeah. Right. It's just, I mean, that, that's the question. And none of the, the I mean, the, none of the gospel writers actually state that Jesus is the one who told them that he was born in Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. He may not have. And one of the, one of the books of the, of about Jesus, one of the gospels that has the infancy narrative in it is Luke's gospel. Yeah. And he says that he, it, it, he like, used multiple yeah. sources yeah. and interviewed people and so on. <laughs> so could something like that have happened? Well, it couldn't have been. I don't think it could have been as simple as just Jesus making it. Up. Right, right. He would have had to have multiple people covering from him. And yeah, I agree. This gets back to what um, conservative scholars often say about conspiracy theories and why they're so unlikely is just all you need is one person to break uh-huh. the silence. And, you right. know, you got a whistleblower and the whole thing comes apart. Right. So conspiracies are are extremely difficult to hold if they come out during their times. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I would say, so yeah, of course you could, of course you could say anything. You could say anything happened. Right. um, I would, I would say that it would require some evidence. Yeah. And, and um, this is just like one small example, but the first time that that I ever met you, Nick was when I was a student in college and you came and spoke at, um, at the campus ministry that I was a part of. And it was, I think it was like evidence for a hero or I forget what it was called, but it was, right yeah, it, was about, it was evidence for the resurrection. Yeah. It was right before Easter. I think it was called the rise of a hero. Yeah, the res- that I think that's true. Um, but I, I remember some of the things that you, some of the different apologetics you talked about. And one was about, um, at least I think this was in that same talk, but one was about how all of these disciples of Christ were killed or almost every one of them was killed for believing this. And like, if, if he was lying about it, what, why would they be so willing to lie for him once he was gone, that they were willing to be killed as well? And I mean, that, that's just, that was something that I found to be compelling personally. But I I think this gets, is an example of what you're saying that like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that one of the things that makes that compelling is that the only evidence we have from the Roman empire about how Christians were supposed to be treated was that the emperor said, that they were to be asked to sacrifice to the gods. And if they did so and recanted their faith, they were not to be killed or punished. <laughs> and so one of the things that we know is that it's not like they were going to kill like the apostle Thomas, you know, 
I mean, that's not a good one because he didn't die under the Romans. But like, take Peter, for example. Mm-hmm. Like, like, when Peter was going to be killed for being Jesus' disciple, they didn't say, look, we're going to kill you no matter what. Did Jesus rise from the yeah, dead? Yeah, yeah. No, it was, like, it was like, look, if you'll just recant, we're not going to kill you. Yeah. And he's like, you know what? Why don't you crucify me upside down? Because I shouldn't be dignified enough to be crucified up, right side up like my Lord. You know, like that, that was his attitude about it. So yeah. like, and, and to think that like none of them broke. I mean, that's right. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of people, you know, and it's not just mm-hmm. the 12. I mean, it's all it might, like more than four or 500 people saw Jesus alive and a lot of them, yeah, you know, were mistreated and persecuted. So, and so, or, yeah. or it stands to reason that they were. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I, I don't find some of these kinds of, usually it relies on only looking at part of the, infer, a part of the argument for the resurrection of Christ or the deity of Christ or yeah. the fulfillment of the prophecy or whatever. Yeah. Okay, this next person's asking, it's it's more of an application question than clarifying anything from your sermon, but they said, how can we clearly and lovingly communicate God's revelation in creation to non-believers? Yeah, for about 40 years, the flagship atheist in the West was a guy named Anthony Flew. Um, Flew's a little bit older than Dawkins and company, and his book on logic was used for 40 years as like the flagship. Like if you went to like a big skeptic website, his book on logic would have been the one that you would use on logic and mm-hmm. reasoning. And he like faithfully taught people to be atheists. The mm-hmm. the thing that ultimately broke his atheism very late in his life was he said that over the course of his life, the argument from design, what's called the teleological argument or the argument for fine tuning had just gotten better and better and better and better with science. Like science kept showing mm-hmm. how all these constants and how all these, all these scientific principles and all these mathematical principles were like all exactly dead on mm. for life. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the capacity to believe that all of these would just sort of like naturally be perfect. Right. Just seemed ludicrous, right? Yeah. The only way people have attempted to try to make any sense of this is with a multiverse theory. Um, that is that there's sure. because there's an infinite number of unknown universes, there must be one like this, and we just happen to be living in that one, which is which is a clever little gambit, but there's <laughs> literally zero evidence for it. Like there's yeah. no scientific evidence that we live in a multiverse. None. I mean, it's it's a mere postulation, uh-huh. right? And it, it becomes difficult in some sense because people are always like, Occam's razor, what's the simplest explanation? Well, what is the simplest explanation? God or an infinite number of infinitely complex universes that you've postulated, right? I think mm-hmm. God is right up there with, I mean, it's at least, it's at least even, you know? So people like, um, like um, Hawking's and some of these other folks who have maintained their atheism in the face of scientific constants like that, um, they cling to the multiverse theory, but there just, there isn't any evidence for it. Right. And there is, I mean, there is comparatively evidence for God, like the resurrection of Jesus and his Christ and so on. Right. So um, I think that, um, there are things that you can do. So I think the teleological argument, argument from fine tuning, I think the argument from information is a pretty powerful one. Um, there's and there's a number of them, but you ha- like if you're going to use them, you gotta like as arguments, you gotta get pretty well versed in them. Um, sure. But I also think that if you're a little bit simpler person, I think it's fine to say just look around. Like just because you can use science to describe all of this, mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you've really suck the wonder out of it and it doesn't mean that it's not miraculous mm-hmm. from a certain perspective and it do- it doesn't mean that this all doesn't declare the glory of god like like even people like richard dawkins will say i don't have to believe in god because science is so amazing right? yeah mm-hmm. and so i fulfill my need for human wonder 
by seeing all the wonder in the truths of science, right? But that's bullcrap. Science is just a description. Mm-hmm. It's not wonder. It's a description of the things that are wonderful. And you're describing them mathematically and scientifically, but it's just a description. It's not the wonder itself. Yeah. And so if you if you can stand there with a straight face and say, I don't need that because science fills me with wonder, you're really begging the question. Science is a description of something, and that thing fills you with wonder. Why? Yeah, I think I don't know if you've I recently watched um, a documentary about the Challenger. Um, and th- as you were talking about this, I, this idea of a description versus the wonder itself, it made me think about like all of these scientists who are working on trying to create these different rockets to function properly. And they have all these formulas and they can write down on a piece of paper that they know that if they do all these things properly, this rocket is going to blast off and it's going to go into space. But it's when they're actually watching it happen that it's emotional. It's not seeing the formulas and and the processes written out on a piece of paper. It's watching a rocket fly into space. That's what gives them wonder. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I've sat in biology class and taken botany, and I understand how plants work. But every, I mean, every time I take a second when I walk by a tree, and realize that like millions and millions and millions of cells all kind of know automatically what to do because of their DNA, yeah. and without thinking, without a brain or anything, this like like complex yeah. system has like this inherent circulation system, creating food and moving like, yeah. and it just everything just kind of knows to do it. Yeah. Um. And like it, it doesn't really. The fact that we can describe all the processes and their chemistry doesn't take away the wonder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that wonder that such a thing should exist seems to point me to God. Yeah. Now that could be like a trick of evolution in my neurology, <laughs> but it also could be that my mind has been developed to see what's there and yeah. what's there is wonder and that wonder points beyond to one who's wonderful. Yeah. Creatively wonderful. Mm-hmm. So, so I think you can take a sentimental approach, mm-hmm. essentially, yeah. and say, "Look, I look around and I see wonder, and I see one behind it who creates what is wonderful." Yeah, I, I don't, I don't need it to be more complicated than mm-hmm. that. I don't think it has to be, but I also think there are more complicated ways to do it for sure. people who need such mm-hmm. things. That's good. Okay, the next question. Um, this person says, "Is there a difference between trusting God and having faith in God? And if yes, how are they different?" Uh, I think uh, not really is the short answer, right? Faith is supposed to be um, trust such that you'd put your weight into something and act as though you believe it's true, Mm -hmm. right? Though sometimes using the word trusting God um, has a more verbal kind of action-oriented idea built into the word. But no, I mean, faith is supposed to mean that you are actually trusting God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Having faith in somebody is putting your trust in them. Yeah. I think that's, I wonder if connotation like plays into this too, just because I think that when I think of those two, I think more about belief when I think about faith. And I think, like you said, Mm -hmm. more about action when I think about trust. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think it's fine for them to have a connotational difference. mm -hmm. But they are getting at the same yeah. thing. If you mm-hmm. if you have if you have faith in God in the biblical sense, it's not just cognitive right, it is. that you're trusting mm-hmm. God. 
that you're 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 leaning the weight of your life onto yeah. him so that if he moves you fall yeah yeah um okay next question how would you counsel someone who has a rooted faith and understands apologetics but still consistently struggles emotionally with the inescapable nature of death and persisting doubts is there hope for peace when that time comes Consistently shows emotionally with the inescapable nature of death and persistent doubts. Yeah, um, there is a difference between your deliberative mind understanding the faith well and even understanding the apologetic arguments for a new number of things and your emotional ability to handle the reality of death. Mm. Uh, in, in one sense, it, that's that's almost a good thing. In that most people, for most people, death is such an unreality yeah. that they think that they get it. They think that their faith has prepared them for death. That they're fine. In most cases, that's not true. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that there are some things that you can do to begin to emotionally grapple with that. Um, and there is pe- there is hope for peace. For when that time comes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it, but it it is. I think it's just the case that like there's a lot of things that will make sense of philosophically and theologically. That that doesn't mean that we emotionally yeah. get it, and that that's all gotten worked out yet. Mm-hmm. And that that takes additional work and application and thought and really that just the the process of feeling those feelings and letting them sink in and fearing that feeling that fear of death and then allowing yourself to feel the truth of the promise and letting those emotionally interact in your heart yeah. as you are open hearted about them both at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, it's, it's a different process mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. than um, learning doctrines. Yeah. And, it, but just as valuable. Right. And it's, yeah. I think that obviously this is not always true, but for a lot of people you have a bend towards one or the other. One or the other comes a little bit more naturally. Yeah. So. Yeah, and some people have very, very sensitive temperaments that are very um, melancholy and sensitive at the same time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those folks struggle mightily, yeah. even though their doctrine is really strong. And right. sometimes that's a temperament thing, or or just a um, something that you that you bear. That's that's part of just how your your mind is functioning. Yeah. You know. Okay. This. Um, so our sermon notes, like your slides for the sermons are available online because sometimes you go through the slides faster than someone wants you to. So we, so there was a slide that you didn't get to, and this person wants to know what it was about. They said at the end of your sermon slides, there was a picture of a statue. And what is the significance of that statue? Um, that statue is in Chennai, India, and it is the traditional site of the martyrdom of St. Thomas. There's a church there. And um, it said that, that that was a place where St. Thomas was praying and some uh, some religious zealots who didn't like the gospel yeah. uh, came up behind him when he was praying and stabbed him with spears, I think, is the, is the historical account of his martyrdom. And there's a church there, and there's a statue of him um, with his hand on Jesus' side saying, my Lord and my God. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason I put that there is because I, I, my, my, the ending I was planning on was <clears throat> that – 
once you figure out how to support faith with with certainty yeah right that you you hope with faith right that someone who used to be completely wrecked and controlled by doubt can be someone of incredibly remarkable faith yeah i mean none of none of the apostles I mean, the, part of the irony of Thomas is that the doubter was the one who went to a place with 300 million gods and stood in a place that had no history of Judaism, no history of monotheism, no history of any of that, went to the hardest tribe to convert the Brahmins and converted them. Yeah. I mean, not all of them, but like a lot of yeah. them, such that the the Thomas Christian church exists to this day, 2000 years later. Yeah. Um, s- such that most of Hinduism as it exists today post-dates Christianity in India. Wow. Christianity is older than most forms of Hinduism in India. And nobody knows that. I mean, certainly nobody the Modi government thinks that. Um, And Hinduism was on its way to completely die out in India until it was revived by the British, Mm. which people also don't know, which is a very sad history. Yeah. Um, But um, it just goes to show that the fact that you are a doubter at one time does not mean you must always be one. Yeah. And that if you get a hold of this idea of really embracing the certainty god gives through faith yeah through his own proofs and promises and actions and in creation and in salvation history and in the resurrection of christ and all of that that you really can find a certainty even if you are quite the doubter mm-hmm. yeah that is really encouraging i'm glad that someone asked that because i i knew that you had that part written in but um i'm glad you got to talk about it here mm-hmm. okay so the last few questions are unrelated to the sermon um, okay. so let's start with kenosis theory. Can you, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but can you speak to kenosis theory as it pertains to the incarnation of Christ? Yeah. So, um, kenosis is the Greek word for emptying or, um, hollowing out. And in uh, Philippians two, it says that Jesus emptied himself in his incarnation. And so people have argued for a long time what that means. What did Jesus empty himself of? Power? <coughs> rights? Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, what Philippians explicitly says is he didn't think equality with God was something to be grasped. And so I think what it means is that he was willing to receive the subordinate position of the Savior and function submissively as the Son in order to do the work of redemption. But some people believe, for, for example, one of the reasons, I know the person who asked this, I know why he asked it. Um, one, one of the things, in some charismatic circles, one of the ways they teach about the power of the Spirit in the life of a Christian is that they say Jesus did not have the power that he had because he was the Son of God, but because he was a man full of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And because that's the case, if we are filled with the spirit, you know, we can do all the things Jesus did more. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I just don't think that's a biblical teaching. I, and I don't think you need that teaching to know that the Holy spirit can do even greater things than Christ because the book of Mark explicitly says it. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. At the end it says like Jesus says to his disciples, yeah. you will do even greater things than these. And he means mm-hmm. by the spirit. So you don't have to believe anything about Christology or like Jesus emptying himself or anything like that to believe that the fullness of the spirit in us means that amazing things will be brought about by the spirit. Mm-hmm. That does that does I don't think that necessarily means that every individual human being will all individually be greater than Jesus. Right. I just think it means his church mm-hmm. will do greater things than he ever did yeah. as it spreads throughout the world. Yeah. But it means great things can happen. I don't think it's wise to push that word 
to mean something very specific because it not enough is said in Philippians two for us to build a theology. Out of sure. it. Yeah, in some way, in some ways, Jesus submitted himself to certain kinds of limitations. For example, there's a couple times where he asks questions where he doesn't seem to know the answer. Right. Mm. It may be that there's some there in some way his omni, omni, omniscience omniscience was limited. Mm-hmm. Right. There's another place where he heals people, and because of their lack of faith, he can't heal very many of them. Maybe there's some ways in which his omnipotence was limited. Sure. I, I don't know. I mean, who knows? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All I know is that um, there is no sense in the scriptures that Jesus ever ceases to be the second person of the Trinity. Right. That is the Christ who is the Son, the only begotten of the Father. He is fully man, but he is simultaneously fully God, not because he's filled with the Spirit, but because he is himself the Son. Yeah. Right, and as a man, he is filled with the spirit. Mm-hmm. And where the sun, where the what happens on the basis of the sun or the spirit, I don't think there's any answer to that question, because the spirit does what the father wants done. Sure, and so does the son. Right. It says all through the Gospel of John. Yeah. So the idea that there would be some like daylight between those two, I think, is just unbiblical. Sure, right? just not what Jesus taught about himself. Yeah. So I think that kenosis theories that make too much of the fullness of the spirit of the man, Jesus, Mm. I think can have problems. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think it's necessary to believe that the Holy spirit can bring about amazing things in people's lives when we are sure in the spirit. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I think about the kenosis theory. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Next question. What do you think about the ESV versus the NIV what do you think about okay, so the those ESV two translations? Standard version of the Bible. These are both translations of the Bible into English. ESV is the English Standard Version, and the NIV 2011 is as opposed to the 1982. So the NIV first came out in 1982, and then in 2011 it was rewritten, and it was rewritten with a new translation, um, translation theory, I guess what you call it, translation principles. And the NIV 2011 translation principle was they only use words in common English usage in 2011 Hmm. because of that it radically narrowed the number of english words and the scope of english words that were usable in translation Mm -hmm. it used a very narrow english vocabulary and because of that it ended up changing a lot of the translation from from 1982 now there's a couple issues with that the first is Mm -hmm. an entire generation of christians more like two entire generations of christians read the niv 1982 and when you change mm-hmm. the that scripture, you begin to mess with their ability to find verses, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they, like they don't know where. Yeah. Like there's all these wordings that I can search on, and I can find that verse that I remember. Yeah. Um, if I can search at the NIV 1982, but CC, even though the NIV, even though in the in from the 1982 to the 2011, they kept more than 90 percent of the, the words exactly the same. Well, most verses are more than 10 words. Which means, statistically speaking, they changed every verse. Hmm. Now, they didn't literally do that. Obviously, there are more some more words changed in some verses than others, and some are left completely alone. But they changed most sentences, one way or another, and they changed them to simplify the English. Now, one of the problems I have with that whole issue is there are some words that, like, you need better words, yeah, right. than dumb English vocabulary normally yeah. uses. Yeah, and there's lots of words that you and I don't say but that we understand. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Um, and so you can put those words in writings and when people read it, they perfectly understand what the word means. They just don't use that word very often. 
Yeah. Right. So when you limit yourself to the words people say and write commonly in English, rather than the words they actually understand, yeah, you narrow the language pretty dramatically, and now you have fewer words to choose from, and in some <laughs> cases. Those words just aren't adequate English words to convey the biblical meanings, mm-hmm. right? So I, I really, 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 really dislike the NIV 2011 and what they did with it. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is, is that the NIV is such a good translation that even the 2011 changing of it, it's still a pretty good translation. Yeah. Right? And most of the changes that it makes are... I'm more annoyed that I, the verses aren't the way I remember them. Sure. Than that they don't mean what they should mean. Sure. And when I've looked at all the places where the NIV has changed stuff, I'm angry about half the time, and I think it's an improvement about half the time. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know what actually worked through the Greek, right? I'm not, you know, like here's the translation, blah blah. blah. Yeah. So um, the English Standard Version is a updating of the Revised Standard Version from the 1950s, which was a revision of the King James Version. It has um, I did older not know language that. in it. Yeah, and and so um, a lot of people who the, the the first ESV was written for people who kind of liked a lot of the archaisms, the like old Englishy kind of sound, uh-huh. and so they kept a good bit of that in the ESV. And modern a lot of modern readers don't like that. Yeah, they like they they find it tedious or unhelpful, and they find the wording unmemorable. Uh-huh. And so if you're not connected to that kind of translation because of the sentimentality of reading the archaisms, then it just seems like the even though it was translated in like, I don't know, 2000 or something like that. Yeah. Um, it feels old, you know, yeah. because they kept those wordings. And so as a pastor choosing a Bible for a church, you're kind of like, well, which one of these am I going to pick? Yeah. Do I pick the like good word for word, rich English translation that has these archaisms that people don't like? Yeah. Or do I pick the like ultra modern narrowed <laughs> language, uh-huh. decently well translated NIV? Right? Yeah. And so I realized when I picked Bibles for the church, went back when I did, that if I picked the ESV, it was going to be mostly out of anger. Yeah. And yeah. so this last time, I, I decided to pick the NIV 2011. Yeah. But I don't really, I don't really like it. I think it's an inferior translation to the to the um, to the 82, personally. Yeah. In most cases, there's a few places they fixed, but for the most part, I think it's the worst translation. Yeah. Um. A couple Which of thoughts. Bad. One, just a quick thing. I It's 84, isn't it? Not 82. This doesn't really matter, be. but some people might be picky. So um, that's one thing. Um, just anecdotally, when I was in college, the ESV was gaining a lot of popularity. And my friends just, some of my friends used it, some didn't. But it, they jokingly called it the extra spiritual version. Um, that that's what ESV stood for. The ESV. It was the extra spiritual (laughs) version. But I felt similarly to how you described the changes to the 2011 version. I just was, I just was sad because it wasn't how I memorized these verses as a kid. And I, I, there was the sentimentality of like, these are the verses, these are the ways that I learned it when I heard it for the first time. And I, I wanted that, but yeah. So anyway. Yeah, you're right. The first major revision was 84. So it was published in, 78 and 73 and then its first full revision was 84 and then 2011 okay so yes all right all right um we can move on from that one this person this was emailed in and they say how do you 
How do you see what looks like someone else obviously sinning and not look at them in judgment or judge their heart? An example of this might be witnessing an outburst of anger or impatience. How should a Christian respond in their heart and mind to those kinds of things? From scripture, I think it's obvious that judging that person's heart is sinful, and I'm wondering what the biblical alternative is. Yeah, so... Um, I think this gets at the definition of judging in Matthew chapter seven. So most uh-huh. people, when they think of the the uh, statement "Don't judge lest you'll be judged," is in Matthew chapter seven. And the uh, the uh, the assumption in the use of the word "judge" there means more condemned than discerned, uh-huh. right? So judgment can mean to discern between two things. Yeah. Like you can drink mm-hmm. two wines and you can judge that one tastes better than the other. Yeah. yeah that is your discerning in your taste, right? Yeah. Judge could also mean condemned, right? You can yeah. say you're going to hell. Yeah. There's nothing redeemable about you. Right. In Matthew seven, the question is, which is it? Right? Mm-hmm. And I think that the, I think it's the latter it's condemned because what yeah. it says is that instead of condemning the person judging them, right. You need to recognize that whatever measure you use to judge them is going to be used against you. So the mm-hmm. first thing you got to do is you got to say, oh, gosh, how am I like them? Mm. And that that's the first most healthy thing for two reasons. The first is because you probably are like them and you're probably self-righteous and you don't realize it. Uh-huh. Right. And so he yeah. says, first, remove the plank from your own eye. Right. Yeah. He says, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Right. So what he what he's saying is, is like, yes, you've discerned a real fault in your brother. They really do have like wood in their eyes right the question is what do you do right and the first thing is make sure you're seeing right because you're probably even worse and you just can't see it right mm-hmm. so first mm-hmm. cure yourself then yeah. secondly act therapeutically rather than judgmentally towards your brother right how can you help him get the wood out of his eye mm-hmm. that's the operative question not how can you judge him or destroy him or condemn him because he can't see Right. So I think if you understand those two different definitions of the word judge, you can say, look, you are supposed to discern that the person is doing something wrong and that that means that at this moment sin is taking mastery over them or the flesh. Right. Mm-hmm. The question is, how much is that true of you? Like use the person as a mirror first. Mm-hmm. Right. And then after that sobers you and calms you, is there any therapeutic action of discernment you can do? to help the other person. Yeah. Is there any way you can help them get the speck out of their own eye? Yeah. Right. That's the way you proceed as opposed to condemnation. You're a sinner. You're terrible. You're yeah. right. All you care about is sinning. You just want to give yourself the flesh. You don't even believe that kind of attitude. Yeah. And, and God says, if you act that way, that's how he'll judge you. And you don't want that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's built that somewhat built on a misunderstanding of the definition of the word judge and how that functions and that kind of teaching in Christianity. Yeah. Great. Um, Okay. Last question. I'm very excited about this question. This person writes, Nick, what did you tell your kids about Santa? Um, The answer for me is uh, I did it. Like I, I told them that Santa did not exist. Mm -hmm. Um, I, so I, and part of this is because I don't want to tell them any immaterial being that people can't see exists that doesn't mm-hmm. because at some point they'll find out he doesn't and they may wonder what other immaterial all knowing moral beings that have some say in their future also don't exist. Uh-huh. 
right? And I don't want my words to be a word that dis- disillusions them. Um, however, we do we do kind of revel in the history of Saint Nicholas in our house. Um, Saint Nicholas was a great saint and bishop of the ancient church. Who um, there are uh, there stories about him. Uh, he was wealthy when he became a priest, and he would like fill socks with money mm. and put them on the clotheslines of women who. Um, were likely going to be um, either put into prostitution or very unfavorable in mm. abusive marriages. Mm. And so he, he would like give them these dowries with like anonymously. Yeah. Um, and so, so he, a lot of that St. Nick kind of was related to yeah. St. Nicholas. Yeah. Um, so we do some stuff with that. Um, mm-hmm. My mentor in Florida, a guy named Doug Pennington, um, sort of presented, I can't remember exactly how he did it, it was like he presented Santa as like a, you know, I don't remember enough to tell you, but it, it, he had a way I'm of like. I'm so curious though. <laughs> I know. I need to call on something, but he had a kind of a way of like splitting the difference where he like, he portrayed, oh, you know what it was? I think he dressed up as Santa and did the presents and then he would like come and talk to his kids and like show them that it was him. Okay. So they were kind of in on the gag from the beginning. Sure. And mm-hmm. yet, because he didn't want to tell his kids, look, Santa doesn't exist. Go to school and tell all your right, friends. Right, right. Yeah. You know? So instead what he did was like, he dressed up as it and then kind of revealed the secret. Yeah. So his kids knew. So like, he wasn't lying to them. He yeah. wasn't pulling the wool over their eyes. They were never going to see him as dishonest. Yeah. And yet he kind of like got them to enter into the cultural myth and so on. Yeah. Yeah. It's- in a way that he thought wouldn't damage their faith in the future. A lot of my friends um, who have kids around, so Luke is three. I have a handful of friends who have kids similar ages. So we're all talking about this right now. Like, what are you doing? And that that last example that you gave about Doug, I, there are a couple of friends who are kind of thinking similar things. They're like, well, my kid loves Paw Patrol. He doesn't think Paw Patrol is real. He likes Santa. He doesn't mm-hmm. think Santa's real. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's that. that's kind of what they're choosing to do. Um, one thing I'm curious what you think about this. Cause I, so I, I've had many people say the same thing that you said, like, I don't want to, I don't want them to find out that Santa's not real and then think, well, then Jesus and God aren't real either. Um, I grew up, my parents did the whole Santa thing. I, that was never an issue I had not to say that that isn't an issue. Some kid could have, I just, it was very easy for me to recognize that they were different yeah. things. And even in, I also had the same experience. Yeah, and and with Luca, I even it and it didn't. we haven't made any sort of decision. We haven't ever said Santa is real. We also haven't said Santa's not real. But I've asked him before, like, what do you think? And he said Santa's pretend. And I said, what about Jesus? And he says Jesus is real. And there's part of me that wonders, like, I, I don't know, like, it it does not seem beyond plausibility that there's something in us that understands that like there is even at that young of an age that there's a difference between play and the reality of like who god is and this like wonder and and i i don't know i don't know what to make of that but it's it's something that i'm at least questioning right now like interacting with luca in these ways does that make sense yeah i mean i think part of it's cultural development too i mean when i was a kid so I'm like a generation older than you, right? Yeah, I think you're. Mm-hmm. I'm not only thinking I'm like 11 years older than you. When I, when I was a kid, kids believed in Santa. Like they believed that there was an elf that brought us all yeah. toys. Yeah. Like it wasn't pretend. Like it was a. 
It was a thing. And parents relished in the mythology of it and the magic of it. Yeah. And yeah. The movies portrayed it and um it was a sacred thing. Yeah. Like it was almost like you had you had lost something of your innocence when you found out that Santa wasn't real. Yeah. And I yeah. thought I at least I at least pretty much thought Santa was real until I was, I don't know, seven or something like that. Uh-huh. I and mean, like and I, I like I can I could vaguely remember when like my brother said something, I was like, Wait, Santa's not real? And my mom was like, <gasps> Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. wait a second. I mean, I suspected it, but like I would never have thought it, you know? Mm-hmm. Why did all these people tell me something that wasn't true, yeah. you know? And I I didn't have a religious crisis with it, you know. I didn't have much of a faith in any way. But I think I think the mythology and the wonder has gone out of the world. I think that I think that mm-hmm. secularity has um, has demythologized human existence to the point where like we don't take any mythology seriously anymore, not yeah. even with our children. And so I I just don't think that the whole thing matters. I think it's so commercialized that I mean it used to be the idea that like kids didn't get much for Christmas, mm-hmm. but you got something, and it was partly because you were good all year. Yeah. because Santa was keeping track. Yeah. And now it's just kind of like, well, we're going to give you a lot of presents. Mm-hmm. And so Santa brings them, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's a couple of things. I, that you I say think there are a lot of families that just flatly don't even bother. Like they can't even be bothered with the mythology of Santa. They're still yeah. Buy the gifts, they wrap them and stuff them under the tree. Who cares? Yeah. And like, there's no, there's no sacred anything to it anymore. And so, right. I would rather Christians focus on the sacredness of the birth, remembering the birth of Christ, and doing stuff related to that, and yeah. um, rel- reveling in the true mythology of the Savior of the world, mm-hmm. and then exchange gifts and joy, then mess with a Santa figure. But you know. Go big or go home, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I was, so we're doing, I got this idea from another mom at High Point with um, opening up a Christmas book every morning during Advent, just some different book about Christmas. And um, I, the book that we read this, I think it was today, was The Polar Express. And that was very mm-hmm. much the like, you lost your innocence. Like, that's the whole thing that you learn from this book is that if, if when you stop believing in Santa Claus, you've lost your innocence. But that's funny because it's the same sort of mentality in um, Chronicles of Narnia that like the people who grow as they grow and as they like stop having this faith and wonder in something, they stop believing in Narnia. And it's so I, it is this interesting, like I see the, the, I see the desire to be consistent in what you're teaching your children, but I, but I also am for the like the magic and the wonder of this time of year. And mm-hmm. I, I like what you're saying, like find ways to do that around the Christian tradition and the, what we know is true and the real story of Christ's birth. Um, but I, I personally think like having gifts from Santa Claus, it didn't harm me in my faith. But again, not to say that the, it would have for somebody else. So I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, I, th- I think one of the things you're getting at is, and I think this is helpful, is that um, wonder is built in kids the same way like reason is. Like it's cultivated. Yeah. And if you don't have it, if we don't have any mythology to tell our kids, they grew up to be very shallow, brittle, and small creatures. Mm-hmm. And so 
um, like my mom read to me all the Greek mythology, Greek and Latin mythology, because oh, really? she's Italian, yeah. right? It's all part of, yeah. And so like, that was all important. And then, you know, when I was a kid, we read stories about knights and, mm-hmm. and heroes and castles yeah. and charges and, and all that stuff. I mean, we call that stuff the humanities because those stories build the humanness in human mm-hmm. beings, right? That's yeah. why you're supposed to study the humanities, right? right? You're sp- and, and we don't do that very well. Yeah. We don't have big mythological stories. I mean, I mean, honestly, like it's like Star Wars is, uh-huh. is all we got. You know that, and maybe some Marvel comic movies yeah. now. Well, I mean, for me, it was Harry Potter. Like that's, I remember my mm-hmm. mom reading those. I mean, that was also funny because so many Christians were debating: should I, I let my children read Harry Potter or not? But my mom read mm-hmm. it to me, and like it was, it was this. I see that same sort of a thing of like, I I didn't ever believe that it was real. And my mom would talk to me about that too, but I was caught up in the excitement of that story too. And the, like, it felt like this big um, journey. And anyway, so that's a plug for maybe it hasn't been lost since star Wars, but yeah, but I, I just, I I do think that it's, yeah, it, it is too simplistic to say, well, I don't want my kids to, not believe in God. So I'm not going to tell them about Santa. I, I think that there is a corollary of like, there are mythological stories you have to tell your kids. You, like you have to tell your kids stories that create skylights to the world, not just windows, or they'll become small minded secularists. Yeah. Like that, like, you know, that they can't, they just, there's no romance in their heart. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's the kind of people who know the, uh, the price of everything, the value of nothing, I think mm. is, uh, uh, the guy who wrote Dorian Gray at, what was his oh, name? Oh, I don't remember. Anyway, um, Oscar Wilde, you know, has said, and um, you don't want people like that. You don't want uh, C.S. Lewis called them um, trousered apes or men without chests, mm. like people who had no sense of romance. Yeah. Um, and and those kinds of people would become not just small but brutal mm-hmm. sorts of people. The sorts of people that come to power in his book, that hideous strength. Mm. So yeah, so yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I just I think that people need to understand that, and then well, then do whatever you want about Santa. Yeah. You know? uh-huh. All right. Well, thanks for going through all these questions. Thanks for everyone who asked them. Um, we'll have a bunch next week too because we're not going to have AMA during the service um, next week or this upcoming Sunday. Right. So because we have baptisms. Yeah. So be ready for another full episode next week. All right. Thanks, everyone. Cool. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.